Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 138 of the GDPR Weekly Show and coming up in this week's episode. We have news that pubs are unhappy with the extra regulations they are going to have to fulfil to collect data after April the 12th when they reopen. We then take a look at vaccine passports and their implications if they are introduced in the UK after June the 21st this year. And we then have news that the ICO is making data privacy impact assessments compulsory for employers who are implementing mandatory COVID-19 testing on their employees who are returning to work. We then have a timely reminder about the age-appropriate design code, which is coming into force in the UK on September the 2nd this year. And we then have news that Booking.com has been penalised for not complying with the 72-hour rule for notifying the Data Protection Authority after discovering a data breach. We then move to Edinburgh, where there's been a data breach at consulting firm Arup. And we then look at some controversy over an alleged cover-up of a data breach at Ubiquity. We then travel to India where Mobitrick is investigating a possible major data breach. And we then come back to Dorset where Solicitor involved in a data breach survived being struck off the professional register. So as always, a good range of articles for you this week here in the GDPR Weekly Show. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please do email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Stay home, stay safe. On this Easter weekend, we start looking forward further into April and indeed to April the 12th when here in the UK, pubs will be able to reopen, albeit only to serve customers outside. However, the news has been tempered somewhat for the pub trade by the requirements which have now been placed on it by the government because what they're saying is unlike in the previous situations where pubs have been open and able to serve people outside following previous lockdowns, this time pubs won't be able to just take the name and address details of one member of each group for onward passing to the NHS Track and Trace programme. Instead, they're going to have to capture the name and address details of every person in the party. Now, if every person in the party's got a smartphone, then that's not too bad, because actually all that means is they've got to have the QR code displayed somewhere prominently, and people visiting the pub can just scan their QR code with the phone, that takes all the details for NHS test and trace, and that's it, it's all done. But where that's not the case, then of course you get the scenario where a member of staff for the pub has not only got to go out to the table where the customers are sitting and get their drinks order, they've also got to go out and get the name and address details of each person who's sitting at the table. That's going to have two impacts. One is the impact on service time, obviously, because it's going to take time to select those details. And pubs have been warned that there's a financial penalty if they have an outbreak of COVID on their premises and they haven't taken all the name and address details of everyone who's there. So the pubs are really quite obliged to do it. And then on top of that time penalty, there's also obviously the GDPR issue because they're now holding personal data. That means that they now have to A, make sure they're registered with the ICO, but B, they need to keep that data securely for at least 14 days in case it's required by NHS Track and Trace. 
And then they've also got to have a document disposal policy, which is how they safely dispose of those names and addresses after 14 days, because then they're not allowed to keep them anymore. And also, even though they're gathering those names and addresses, they can't use them for marketing. So it's a total cost to the pub or restaurant, with probably to the pub's thinking, minimal gain from their perspective. But nonetheless, that's what they're going to have to do if they want to be open. Now, the other issue which has come out from that of pubs reopening is it's unclear from the current regulations, and so it's hoped, of course, that the government will clarify this between now and April the 12th, but given that they're currently on Easter recess and there are only 10 days to go, then I'm not that optimistic that they're going to be able to get it done in time. But anyway, hopefully they will clarify. The whole issue of payments, because what they're suggesting is that it will not be allowed for members of the public to go inside the pub to pay their bill. Now, for city centre pubs, pubs with good broadband and mobile signal reception, that's probably a minor issue because they can equip, you know, their bar staff with iZettle or Square or a similar payment device and they can just collect the payment from the customer outside. However, if the pub has very poor Wi-Fi or has very poor mobile signals, then that option is not open to them. The only way to do it is to get the people to come into the building, but you're not allowed to do that. So presumably it's going to mean that lots of pubs will set up a factory, a barrier at the door of the pub which will prevent people accessing the pub but will enable people to go to that barrier and pay. A bit like several shops have done on many high streets where you know that they have a barrier across the door, you go to the barrier at the door and you tell the member staff in the shop what you want, they go and get it, they bring it back to the door and then they give it to you. But the other issue that also is not clear then in this legislation is what happens about toilets. Because if you're saying that members of the public can't go into the pub to pay their bill, but they can go in to use the toilet, then that really does seem absurd. And are we really going to be in a situation where the pubs don't have to monitor how many people there are in the toilets at any one time so that they make sure there aren't more than the allowed number of people in there? Or are people expected to self-regulate on that? Who knows? So, as I say, whilst the general feeling is one of celebration that pubs will reopen on April the 12th, nothing's ever as straightforward as it looks, especially where COVID is involved. We do have another episode of the GDPR Weekly Show between now and April the 12th, so if we receive any update from the government on these instructions, we will, of course, bring it to you in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The whole issue of venues reopening, and here I'm not just talking about pubs, but shops, non-essential shops, leisure facilities, swimming pools, gyms, golf clubs, music festivals, you name it. All of those reopening brings about the thorny issue of vaccine passports. There is a challenge already by a number of Labour and Conservative MPs against the idea of vaccine passports. But assuming they do happen, then of course it's highly likely that the vaccine passport will not be a physical document, but it will actually be an app which people keep on their mobile phone. Although it might be both. But for the moment, let's just concentrate on the app on the mobile phone. Because a former top government cyber advisor here in the UK has warned that the data needed to back up these vaccine passports would become a honeypot for hackers. Peter Yap, the ex-deputy director of GCHQ's National Cyber Security Centre at the NCSC, said that a vaccine passport app could be an easy target for cyber criminals if all users' data is kept in one centralised database. 
He said, centralised databases mean you're putting a lot of data in one place, so it becomes an attractive target for hackers and the like, so it's like a honeypot. It attracts people in, and they don't know how to go because there's so much data. It's not viable to try and access everyone's phones individually, but if you go to one central place to get millions of records, then that's very attractive. And he makes the point that it might not just be rogue hackers, it could be rogue states like Iran or North Korea, who would quite like to get their hands on all that data about UK citizens. So what do we know about vaccine passports at the moment? Well, we know that the idea is being investigated by the Cabinet Office under Michael Gove, and that NHSX, what was NHS Digital, has already begun developing the app in anticipation of getting a green light from Michael Gove. However, as we mentioned, there's considerable political opposition to this. Steve Baker, deputy leader of the COVID recovery group of Conservative MPs, said vaccine passports would prove a magnet for fraud. He said, as a software engineer, I know all software has bugs. Bugs create security vulnerabilities. That's why it's a terrible idea to gather together so much data of such importance all in one place. This is one more nail in the coffin in the idea of COVID certification. He's not alone. Former Cabinet Minister David Davis said, as soon as you've got access to a national health database, you've created a database for hackers. He went on to say, the Pentagon got hacked, Microsoft got hacked, TalkTalk got hacked. You just can't stop them. It doesn't matter. However you do it, they'll find a way of spoofing the system and getting 60 million records. All sorts of markets might buy it. Drugs, companies, you name it, it's very dangerous. However, it is known that Boris Johnson is in favour of the idea of vaccine passports. And indeed, it does seem that public appetite for vaccine passports appears to be growing. A survey by Ipsos Mori published this week found that 62% of respondents were in favour of vaccine passports to enter pubs, bars and restaurants. More than 20% of people thought the ethical and legal concerns around vaccine passports outweighed the potential benefits, although around 50% of those surveyed did say that they were worried that it could lead to inequalities. UK hospitality chief Kate Nichols said that vaccine passports posed quite a challenging issue for a lot of people to wrestle with. If you're in a consumer environment, you have legal concerns regarding age, ethnicity, gender, and I don't think considering a valid test alongside a vaccine certificate is enough, she said. Desmond Swain, Tory MP for New Forest West, and known to be a critic of many of the government's actions over COVID, said this takes us back to the debates of the early 2000s when Labour sought to introduce ID cards because that's exactly what the passport will become. We approached the Cabinet Office for a statement and a spokesperson said the government will review whether COVID status certification could play a role in reopening our economy, reducing restrictions on social contact and improving safety. The government will also consider the ethical, equalities, privacy, legal and operational aspects of this approach and what limits, if any, should be placed on organisations using certification. This is like the rumble on as we head towards June the 21st when hopefully all the restrictions, as we have them, are going to be lifted here in the UK. But I think that most of us suspect that that lifting of restrictions is going to be done with quite a number of caveats, of which digital passports may be one. So we will come back to this whole issue in future episodes of the GDPR Witch Show. Stay home, stay safe. The other issue to come up again this week is the whole issue of whether employers can impose mandatory COVID-19 testing on their employees who are returning to work. We previously covered the whole issue of employee testing in depth back in episode 114 of the GDPR Weekly Show, so... I'd recommend that you go back and listen to that episode if you're considering employee testing. But also this week, the ICO has stepped into this whole issue of employee testing and said that 
if employers are looking to impose mandatory testing on their employees, then they must, and I emphasize must, carry out a data privacy impact assessment, the DPIA. And they must keep that assessment for future reference, should there be any queries, so that it can be referred to. Now, I recognize that many employers probably won't have carried out a data privacy impact assessment and may indeed be unaware they need to do one before now. But if you need any help carrying out your data privacy impact assessment into mandatory testing of your employees, then please do listen out for our contact details, which are coming up at the end of this article. The purpose of the data privacy impact assessment is to firstly describe the nature, scope, context and purpose of processing, secondly assess the necessity and proportionality of the project, thirdly assess the risk to individuals and fourthly assess the measures to mitigate any such risks. Where mandatory testing increases the likelihood and severity of any impact on individuals, employers should consider whether the high-risk processing activities are justifiable if it's not possible to remedy them. The DPIA should also outline the employer's review mechanisms to explain how the employer will review mandatory participation to ensure the measure remains proportionate over time, i.e. you can't just carry out this data privacy impact assessment say right okay we're going to impose mandatory testing on our employees and then think okay we can carry on doing that forever in a day that's not the case you're going to have to put a time limit on it at which point you'll carry out the data privacy impact assessment yet again to see whether it's still relevant and still necessary we will very gladly talk you through how to do such a data privacy impact assessment all you need to do is contact us using the details which are coming up right now Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. Regular listeners may remember that back in episode 130 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we mentioned about the new ICO age-appropriate design code, which is designed to ensure that websites aimed at children are suitable for children and that they have suitable privacy policies, which children can understand. It's important to remember that the code is not limited to services directed only at children. If under 18s are likely to access your service, then the code applies to you. And that brings about another important point, of course, which is that from September this year, indeed from the 2nd of September this year, anyone under 18 will be regarded as being a child, as far as the ICO is concerned, rather than under 13, as is the case at the moment. A recent survey carried out by the ICO found that 75% of businesses were not aware of the code, even though it's coming in to be legal force on the 2nd of September, which is now less than six months away. If you believe that you could be covered by the new age-appropriate design code, or indeed if you're unsure whether you could be covered by the age-appropriate design code, then please do get in touch with us without delay, because time is ticking on getting your privacy policies and other procedures correctly in line with the age-appropriate design code and it's important that you start thinking about any actions you need to take now. So please do get in touch with us here at the GDPR Witcher Show and we would gladly talk you through what you need to do. And now, the rest of this week's news. Probably one of the items of GDPR which most often gets overlooked is the need to report any data breach to the ICO or to the relevant data protection authority in whichever country you're in in Europe within 72 hours of you discovering such a data breach has taken place, assuming, of course, that the breach is serious enough that it requires notification to the ICO 
and regular listeners will know that that barrier is something we've discussed many times here on the GDPR Week show. Well, this week, the Dutch DPA has perhaps brought everybody up with a start on this importance of this 72-hour limit by fining Booking.com €475,000 for failing to report a data breach which they had in 2018 within the required 72 hours. To remind you a little about the breach, in the breach, more than 4,000 Booking.com customers had their names, addresses, phone numbers and booking details accessed by cyber criminals. 300 people also had their credit card information stolen, including a CVV code in almost 100 cases. The bad actors phoned staff in 40 hotels in the UAE and persuaded them to hand over login details to customers' Booking.com accounts. They later contacted the victims by phone and email pretending to be from Booking.com in an effort to extract further information and credit card details. Amsterdam headquartered Booking.com was notified of the data breach on 13th January 2019 but didn't report it to the regulator until February 7th 2019 contravening the 72-hour period rule. Monique Verdier, Vice President of the Dutch Data Protection Authority, said Booking.com customers ran the risk of being robbed here. Even if the criminals did not steal credit card information but only someone's name, contact details and information about his or her hotel booking, the scammers could use that data for phishing. By pretending to belong to the hotel by phone or email, they tried to take money from people. That can be very credible if such a scammer knows exactly when you booked and which room, and asks if you want to pay for those nights. Booking.com, in a statement, said that the fine did not concern its actual security practices, just the late reporting of the breach. A small number of hotels inadvertently provided their Booking.com account login details to online scammers, but there was no compromise of the code or databases that powered the Booking.com platform, they said. It's not yet known whether Booking.com will appeal the size of the sanction, but we will of course keep an eye on this case, and if there are any future updates, we will bring them to you in a relevant edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. To Edinburgh now, and professional services firm Arup has told employees that its third-party payroll provider had suffered a cybersecurity incident on January the 12th. The payroll provider had been the victim of a ransomware attack, meaning files were copied and encrypted before being held to ransom in order to access the data. According to the Arup website, the site at South Queensferry is home to more than 150 planners, engineers, digital experts and technical advisors. It's understood that amongst the data compromised were first name, surname, bank account number, bank sort code, national insurance number, date of birth, gender and home address. In a statement, Arup said that anyone employed by them since November 2018 could have been affected. The Arab spokesperson said that the incident had been reported to the ICO and that law firm CEL solicitors has received inquiries from Arab staff. If we receive any update from this, either from Arab or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. <laughs> There are concerns around an alleged cover-up of a data breach at Ubiquiti, a producer of cloud-enabled Internet of Things devices, including routers and security cameras. On January 11th, Ubiquiti disclosed unauthorised access to certain networks hosted by an unnamed third-party cloud provider. It encouraged users to change their passwords and deploy multi-factor authentication. In that original message, Ubiquiti claimed that they had no evidence of user data being exposed, but did not rule out the possibility. However... Brian Krebs from KrebsonSecurity.com has now received contact from an individual claiming to have participated in the breach response. This individual, who has remained anonymous to protect their identity, 
claimed the actual extent of the breach was catastrophic and that Ubiquity had actually downplayed its severity in its original disclosure. Further, the implication that the breach occurred due to the third-party provider was disingenuous. The whistleblower contacted Security.com after contacting the company's own whistleblower hotline and also the European Data Protection Agency. The whistleblower claims that the attackers gained administrative access to Ubiquity servers hosted by Amazon, which requires a cloud tenant to secure its own data access. According to the whistleblower, they were able to get cryptographic secrets for single sign-on cookies and remote access, full source code control contents and sign-in keys exfiltration. Apparently, the attackers gained these privileged credentials when the root administrator logins were left in a password vault which the attackers accessed. We've asked Ubiquity for a statement, but they've not produced one as this episode goes to broadcast. If we do receive a statement from Ubiquity, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Having initially dismissed reports of the leak of 100 million customer files on the dark web, Indian payments processor MobiQuick has brought in external investigators to conduct a forensic data security audit. The alleged data breach was first exposed early in March. At the time, the revelation received a ferocious response from MobiQuick, accusing the, the person who reported the data breach of concocting the data and threatening legal action, a reaction which led one commentator to use the firm of going all Iraqi general on the reports. Now a month later, MobiQuick admits that some users have reported that their data is visible on the dark web. The firm says it undertook an internal investigation when reports of the hack first surfaced, but found no evidence of a breach of its systems. In a statement on the latest developments, MobiQuick says, The company is closely working with requisite authorities and is confident that security protocols to store sensitive data are robust and have not been breached. Considering the seriousness of the allegations and by way of abundant caution, it will get a third party to conduct a forensic data security audit. The firm believes that stolen data from other users may have been accessed from other third party sites. It is entirely possible that any user could have uploaded her or his information on multiple platforms, hence it's incorrect to suggest that the data available on the dark web has access from MobiQuick or any identified source, the spokesman said. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. To Dorset now, and a newly qualified solicitor said they were blinded by panic, which caused them to lie about sending an email containing personal data to the wrong person. Victoria Elise Wellen appeared in front of the solicitor's disciplinary tribunal who decided that exceptional circumstances meant that she should be spared being struck off, saying it would be disproportionate to do so. Wellen, who at the time was employed by Dutton Gregory LLP, prepared an email including attachments made up of a client's medical records, however sent the email to a person unconnected to the client's matter on January 30th, 2019. The following morning, when the client queried the whereabouts of the email, Wellen, who had been qualified for just four months, replied, it would appear that an email sent yesterday at 4pm was blocked by a firewall due to the size of the attachment. An hour later, Wellen reported the breach to her firm and on February the 1st, 2019, wrote an email to the firm which said, I would like to apologise again if the course of the action I took when discovering my own error was incorrectly previously explained. I was blinded by panic. In mitigation, the tribunal heard how Wellen was juggling an extremely heavy workload at the time and was the subject of a number of matters of a deeply personal distressing nature. The misleading email was sent to client when Wellen was 
hysterical and in a state of shock at having realised their error. In sending the misleading email, the respondent subjective in a fleeting moment of blind panic and madness at realising the error of the previous day had only ever been to buy a short amount of time in order to discuss with her superiors how best to inform the claimant that his record has accidentally been sent to a third party, the tribunal heard. The respondent is utterly devastated by her serious error, for which she takes full responsibility and apologises sincerely and unreservedly. The tribunal suspended Welland's practising licence for six months and ordered her to pay costs of £5,000 to the Solicitor's Regulation Authority. The tribunal said her actions were a moment of madness from an inexperienced lawyer who had almost immediately realised the gravity of her error and taken full responsibility for it. She had not benefited from her actions and the tribunal noted the personal difficulties with which she was struggling, which clearly significantly contributed to this serious error of judgment. The tribunal was satisfied that the circumstances taken together were exceptional and related directly to the dishonesty. The tribunal was therefore satisfied that it would be disproportionate to strike Ms. Wellen from the role in this case. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production. Until next time. Bye-bye.